Okay, the most dynamic panel discussion, somebody said before. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you, Nicolas, for the opportunity to uh, moderate this panel discussion. Uh, in on navigating through the industry transformation while looking at the prospects, uh, opportunities, uh, and challenges in the shipping industry. Uh, my name is Savan Kanzaris, and I'm the chairman of EY in Cyprus. Well, yes, this is the last session of the forum, and uh, I do look forward to yet another exciting uh, and interesting panel discussion amongst distinguished uh, panelists, uh, very well known and successful uh, ship owners. We are already past the uh, uh, worst of the pandemic. However, the recent geopolitical events uh, have resulted in increased volatility and uncertainty in the shipping market worldwide. Global growth has been hit by uh, rising uh, interest rates, rising inflation, as well as uh, uncertainty in the shipping uh, uh, market. Now, um, we have seen energy prices rising. Energy supplies to Europe are currently being resourced from new geographies. And we have also ongoing debate on uh, technological innovation and decarbonization. At the same time, uh, skilled resources uh, are indeed, uh, uh, there are shortages of skilled crew. Uh, affected by disruption in the European labor market, as well as shortages in Asian uh, pools. Here in Cyprus, we continue to attract uh, ship operators and management companies, which make Cyprus a major center uh, in the European and international uh, shipping. However, the, the outlook for the shipping community becomes less and less predictable. So all these points serve as food for thought for our upcoming discussion. So let me quickly introduce to you our distinguished panelists, although I'm sure that they are already very well known to all of you, to most of you. Uh, on the panel, we have Nicole Milona, the CEO of Transmed Shipping Company, a family-owned, uh, Shipping Group, Mr. John Michael Radziwill, Chairman and CEO of Sea Transport Maritime and CEO of Goodbuck, uh, a major shipping group listed on the Norwegian OTC market. Mr. Andreas Hadrianis, the founder and CEO of Cyprus Sea Lines and Hellenic Tankers, and of course the president of the Cyprus Union of Ship Owners. Mr. Lars Barslat, the CEO of Runline PLC, a major uh, shipping group listed on the New York Stock Exchange as well as the Oslo Stock Exchange. And last but not least, Polis Hagioano, the CEO of Safe Bulkers, another major shipping group listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So a great panel indeed, and without further ado, I would like to start the discussion by setting the scene from the perspective of our ship owners. And let me start with uh, Nicole. Nicole, what are the uh, major challenges that your organization or the industry is facing, if you like? Uh, and what is, are the big changes that you see on the horizon? Thank you so much. Well, the biggest challenge is shipping itself, isn't it? Uh, being a global uh, industry, we are lucky enough to not be faced by uh, local uh, hiccups, shall we call them, or uh, politics, um, or even economic problems. But on the flip side of that, we're greatly exposed to the entire world, uh, from interest rate hikes, to inflation in faraway countries, to uh, we heard about uh, crew shortages and lack of training ashore, um, to worldwide recession, geopolitics, war, everything impacts shipping. 
in my in my opinion, the biggest problem isn't so much the challenge, or it's not so much the ever-changing nature of shipping, but the fact that as an industry, we seem to be faced with a polyphony, particularly in terms of uh, regulation. Uh, I think we have heard a lot throughout the day about uh, CII and EVDI and ETS and all the various acronyms anybody can think of, but what it seems to me we forgot to mention throughout the day is how conflicting all these regulations that are supposed to be bringing a better good for all, they actually are. So this in my sense, if my, in my opinion, is, is the biggest challenge for the shipping world, that we are indeed so fragmented amongst ourselves. Thank you, Nicole. John Michael, can we have your views uh, on the biggest challenges that we face and, and, and changes coming up we should be anticipating? So I, I agree with everything Nicole said. Um, I think, oh, sorry. Uh, I agree with everything my esteemed panelist Nicole said. Um, I probably would look at geopolitics um, as the biggest risk and uncertainty um, that could affect our markets. And it's not just our markets, it's the whole world, obviously. We don't really need to go down into what's happening, but it's, a, it's an enormous um, and uh, challenging time for, for us and for everybody. And I think the uncertainty that comes with that is, yeah, is, is at the forefront of our decision-making process. So it's, it's definitely very difficult. Um, going into all the regulations, I can only echo what Nicole says. Um, I think we, and our chairman, I think we have um, wasted an unbelievable amount of time and energy, pun intended, um, with, with, with all these new regulations. In the meantime, over the past 12 years, 15 years, we have reduced uh, our carbon emission per cargo by 60%. That's a fact. And I'm fairly certain most of the stuff we've been hearing about new regulations, new initiatives, etc., had nothing to do with that. So I think as an industry, organically, we're doing a pretty good job of reducing our carbon emissions. And what's so disappointing is we have to make, waste so much of our time um, trying to understand impractical regulations when it seems like they're pretty simple solutions. So those are the two things. Geopolitics, understanding understanding uh, the global economies and how our world works, and also trying to tackle the regulations. And from a ship owner's point of view, it seems to me like it's the old story again. The ship owner is going to have to pay for all of this. And we've actually done a pretty good job of reducing our emissions. So those are my main concerns at the moment. Thank you, John Michael. If I can change a little bit the question, uh, Andreas, and look at the market conditions uh, for, uh, let's say, tankers, drive out, and the container ship sector, uh, what are the prospects, uh, would you say, for these sectors? Same question. <laughs> <laughs> but um, all this can be described by one word. That's uncertainty. We are living in a very, very uncertain environment. We already hear after decades the word de-globalization. Heard about this. That's frightening in shipping. Shipping through through the 90s and 2000 onward, through globalization. Now, because of the uncertainty, now because the world seems to be divided into two, the West with the Russians and the Chinese coming along with, with them, we are already talking about de-globalization. I don't know how much we take care of, or we get ourselves concerned with that. But if we are not careful, and I think we all agree the world 
these days is lacking leadership. Europe is lacking leadership. The states, I don't think we have the best the leadership. I don't think Putin is something that we've seen since the times of the 40s and the 30s. And the Chinese are not playing it cool with the problems in uh, Taiwan, but flirting with uh, Russia and trying to colonize Russia rather than side with the, with the democratic uh, countries. Of course, they are not democratic themselves, but they been uh, enjoying a very good environment the past 20, 30 years through the globalization. And there are, of course, many people who say it was premature globalization was prematurely offered to the less uh, um, democratic countries, as a result of which big growth was allowed in uh, autocratic countries and they are becoming uh, regimes, uh, unshakable regimes. So I think the historian of the future would turn back to these times and put a lot of blame of what and how there was this country the situation now. So how do you put shipping in that? <laughs> it's it's real tough times. So as long as we don't go out of life, I mean it seems to me the, the optimistic way would be that now Russia is in the same position as the states were with the Vietnamese war and they would be there for few years, but nothing else would happen until they decide to withdraw. And the Chinese will not go the extra step of helping too much uh, the Russians of Germany to Taiwan. And slowly, slowly the world will come out of it. That's on the geopolitical side. On the shipping itself, the biggest problem we have in Europe is, I think, they are totally incompetent to handle the European ship. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> All expand, I hope. So, thank you, Liz. Lars, is there anything else you would like to add on the challenges that your organizations are facing or the big changes that you see coming up? Uh, no, but I, I think I'll, uh, maybe on, um, on Revelations we will be painting a little bit of a dark, uh, dark picture. Uh, it also offers opportunity. A little bit louder, please. Yeah, sorry. Uh, on Changes, you know, we we were painting the picture maybe a little bit dark. It's, it's also kind of offering opportunity um, to, to navigate uh, kind of the new technologies and, and maybe make more money out of it. And that brings me to kind of the key point there is um, if you look at what Michael said with reducing uh, emissions by 60% uh, for the last uh, 15 years kind of previous to the focus on ESG, it was actually driven by increased cost of fuel. And every ship owner would always try its best and utmost to save the fuel cost. And that kind of uh, pulled us into to, to the race for eco, slow steaming and, and whatnot. Um, so the importance here, as we are kind of facing all these uh, these uh, changes and, and new requirements, is that you know, kind of the most efficient way of getting there is if we can do it by black economics. So uh, ship owners are in no position to, to carry the cost. This has to be either passed on, uh, or you need an economic incentive to, 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 to get to that point. Thank you, Lars. What uh, is uh, if you would like to add anything on what the previous uh, panelists have uh, mentioned, but also uh, let me ask uh, an additional question to you. Uh, we talk a lot about the industry transformation, but uh, who would you say drives this transformation? Is it the, uh, uh, the, the ship owners? Uh, is it the politicians? Is it the market in general? I think that's what I said. Shipping is concerned. Uh, the changes in uh, 
environmental issues will be the driving force for the years to come. And I think, uh, I said before, that uh, the lead will not come from uh, Greekos or city of Shukonets. The lead will come main, mainly from the liner companies who made a fortune the last two years, and they dictate the changes that we will see. I don't think it can happen very fast, those changes because uh, the technology is not yet available or where that is available is very expensive. So we have to wait and see what uh, fuels and what engine will be available, but this is in the course of the next five to ten years. Now coming to the political situations, first of all to say about our country Cyprus, we have a new government, a new president, new minister, we welcome all on board. They all understand uh, shipping is a major, a major asset for Cypriot economy. And uh, we are very pleased also to see the new president of so the leaders that the first meeting he made was with the Turkish Cypriot uh, leader to make, try and start breaking the ice because it's ridiculous. In uh, 2023, we still have a small island being divided in two. So we have to work hard and find a solution, especially at time now that we have the West and the East fighting each other for no reason in Ukraine. I think the, the war in Ukraine is totally unnecessary. They are fighting over uh, land that is already destroyed and somehow they should sit down. The sanctions is, are hurting Russians but are hurting Europe as well. We see all the costs in the living standards and inflation and uh, the cost of living and the cost of energy, the cost of food is going up. So we all, we are all hurting about uh, this situation. And uh, if things carry on forever in this, uh, in this uh, situation, we simply will have five, six percentage rates, not for one year, but they are saying, and uh, we are all wishing, but for the next 15 years. So this thing must finish one, uh, one day. The sanction is, not the solution, they should sit down and uh, find the solution to this problem. You cannot keep going uh, with this war forever. Russia, I think, are very ready to accept some sort of ceasefire. We should sit down and stop this war somehow before uh, more time is done. Because at the end of the day, the numbers we are hearing are correct. 300,000 people have lost their lives. So this thing should not, and 10 million Ukrainians are away from their country. So they are refugees, and we know in Cyprus uh, what is the suffering of refugees 50 years old. So this is the most important thing we have now, and we are certainly will continue as long as this war continues. So we must all try and uh, help with some wisdom to finalize this story. So, these are the Absolutely, Boris, uh, fully agree with you. Um, John Michael, on, on the same topic as uh, regulation, uh, would you say that the ship owners have a significant role in the drafting of new regulation? Um, or is it um, mainly politicians that they decide and ship owners just have to comply with? Are you asking my opinion or what's happening? <laughs> so I, I, my, my opinion would be that, okay, um, that it should be a bottom-up process with the ship owners of mining and getting involved. Having said that, um, the regulations are what they are. I agree with Lars. Um, there's always opportunity. And we have a level playing field, so to speak, so we have to adapt and improve as best we can within that playing field. But generally, I think regulation or everything is better if it's bottom up than top down, especially if the bottom up understands what they're talking about. Thank you, John Michael. Nicole, would Sorry. Only the person speaking should have the microphone on. On the other, you have it open. Because then it doesn't work. So the person speaking, you should have the microphone on. If you're speaking, you have it on. Do I have it on? Yeah. Right. Okay. Why does it work? Okay. 
So Nicole, how are here, you know. <laughs> Would you say, Nicole, that the regulations apply uh, equally to all? Is the game uh, fair for all players? Or does it matter if you are a small or big owner, or if you are based in Europe or Asia, for example? Unfortunately, it does not. Um, the way that the regulations are designed, they are unequal who they target, but also in the level to which they target. So, for example, let's take uh, the EU ETS. In my opinion, this is a tragedy waiting to happen. The EU is supposedly battling off a recession, trying to soften the impact of inflation right now and with this new measure essentially what they're doing is they are increasing the cost of all inputs to Europe. We all know import is an, uh, Europe is a net importer from, from our clothes to our cars to our, our tablets and phones. Everything is produced elsewhere with cheaper labor costs and brought back in with the most effective method of transportation, shipping. So when you add on significant costs through the ETS, which in theory was designed to finance our green technology and ultimately save the world, actually all you're doing is taxing your average citizen. Um, I know there's been a lot of talk uh, for, for months, if not years, about who should pay for this uh, ETS and who is responsible and who is actually the the polluter. That's a question coming out of this. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and, and, and it is a driving force for sure. But in my mind, this is short-term. It doesn't matter who begins paying for it. At the end of the day, the cost will trickle down to the consumer by virtue of increased shipping costs. And there might be a short-term impact on the ship owner or the charterer or both. But at the end of the day, the only viable option is to pass that cost on to the finished product. Unfortunately. Uh, very much so. If you ask me, it's, a, it's an impressive thought where we're headed in Europe. We've shot ourselves in the foot with this uh, regulation. All we're doing is becoming less competitive. We're leaving room for our agent uh, friends to, to, to boom even further and allowing them to take control of not only our commodities, but also our transportation of our commodities. Thank you, Nicole. Andreas, uh, we discussed earlier on, uh, and we had a very good presentation by Kirsten on sanctions, but would you say that uh, the sanctions against Russia are effective? Very effective. They help China a lot. And yeah, against Europe. So what we are doing is we are selling very cheap the oil to China and to India. India refines it into the products and sells it back at triple the price to Europe. That's what we are today. But allow me to go a step back and continue what Nicole <laughs> criticized on the ETS because it's really annoying what's happening there. We have to take it a step back. May I, by the way? Yeah. We have to take it a step back. It is true, we all agree, that through the uh, Industrial Revolution, the emissions went through uh, every possible limit, and we are now running at double emissions, CO2 emissions, of what the globe can distill, can dilute, can absorb through its natural sinks, which are the forests and the oceans. So we all agree that this should go down to 50%, which, and, and a little bit less, maybe one, two percent less, so through the next 50 years, we've completely cleaned the atmosphere to where it was before we had over CO2 emissions than what the problem can absorb. Right. Now, an ordinary person on the street like me 
old saying that we should do that through the most effective and the least expensive way. So what's the most effective and least effective and least expensive way? Electricity, produce electricity through renewable energies and transform the, all the uh, combustion ashore into electrical um, driven motors, which is zero emission, correct? We all know that. Do we have the technology? Yes, for decades we have this technology. This cost, we had it on the on the uh, Cyprus Maritime, or Maritime Cyprus in October, the analyst, who said the cost of transport of decarbonization shipping, because shipping is in the high seas, and it costs a hell of a lot more, it's 3 to 3.5 trillion dollars. To do what? To clean the 2.5 two, maybe less, of the shipping emissions. That's obscene. We can do that with 200 billion, a 50th of the cost, if we produce from renewable energy um, electricity and save the same emissions ashore. Now, can we afford to do that? The answer is yes. I mean, can we do that practically? The answer is obviously yes. The emissions through the shore electricity, which is now run on uh, electricity that is being produced by fossil and uh, energy and by coal, is 65%. So we can very easily, through uh, uh, renewable energies and known technology, we can get rid of the 2.2%. The same, of course, can apply to the European industry, which has the same problem. Through a fraction of the cost. Now, can you? Anyone explain why such a simple thing escapes the leadership? And it says, no, every industry must do the same. The climate is one, the enemy is one. Why should anybody, why should the cost should make the ship owner pay 100 times more to achieve what you can do with one fraction of the uh, of the result. This is what I mean, we are living in a very strange world, in a very strange environment. Unfortunately, Europe sees shipping as a percentage of GDP, and that's only 1%. And actually, this 1% is mostly down in the south, in Greece and Cyprus. That's Martha and a few friends up north. <laughs> but it doesn't interest them. So they don't care. And this is very, very frightening. Well, shipping is a, uh, is a significant uh, sector in our economy. Exactly. But not in there. So they don't care. They couldn't care less. They come with a decision. Every industry does its own thing. Every industry reduces by the same percentage. Yeah, but one industry, you do it <laughs> with uh, um, a billion, the other industry, you need a, a trillion. So why should you <laughs> do it with a trillion? Thank you, Andreas. Uh, Lars, on the same issue of uh, environmental regulations, how would you say that these will impact the existing fleet and, and the order book? I know we had a, a very good presentation by Fred on earlier on, but uh, uh, do you expect huge investments on, on retrofitting existing vessels or a lot of scrapping uh, and, and new investments in, in modern units? 
No, I, I, I think this is, uh, well, it's obviously part of the opportunity, but it's, uh, it's um, you know, the reason why we have a disciplined order book uh, these days is that, uh, you know, we're, we're in a kind of a technology discussion, there's huge risk on, on, on the various technologies you want to apply in order to, to, to save emissions. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, there's also a regulatory risk involved. Um, when a ship owner is going to invest uh, taking on new orders, he needs return on, on, uh, on the capital basically. And uh, you know, you don't want to make a 20 year investment or 25 year investment even when you have no visibility to, to what's going on. And I think that's, that's an added point to kind of the, you know, the, the situation we are facing here is that you know, regulatory changes are not uh, always visible in a, you know, with a good lead time. Uh, kind of everybody here on this panel, uh, you know, have been in this industry for a long period of time and what you do need, which uh, Cyprus offers, is, uh, you know, a framework you work within that is predictable. But the regulatory kind of bodies right now that are dictating how we're supposed to invest and, and, and kind of conduct our business going forward is less so. Um, and uh, you know, we, we do know that there are kind of political waves here that uh, you know basically want to get rid of oil. So for a tanker owner, it's um, you know <laughs> it's quite difficult to, to to plan for the future. But I think the opportunity then is that we we are probably going to end up in a situation very similar to what we saw in the in the container industry when everybody was surprised that people ordered a lot of goods during COVID is that uh, you realize that uh, the logistical chain uh, doesn't work and, and you basically end up in a situation where uh, freight rates uh, just add to the cost, uh, well you can add the EUAs as well and, uh, and suddenly everybody realizes that uh, you know, kind of, you know, all these things are connected, we're a global industry, we're part of the network globally uh, distributing goods um, around the globe and a very important part in, in such a, in, in this respect. So, uh, to do a very long story short, it's the visibility and the predictability of uh, kind of the demands our industry uh, going to face over the next 10 to 20 years. That's it's a challenge, and, and this makes us basically hesitant to 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 make any decisions. Thank you, Lars. Police. Um is a wait-and-see strategy the best option right now? Or do you think that a quick transformation to more than fleet uh, will pay off later from uh, green premiums? Uh, yes, look, basically the wait-and-see is by definition a wait-and-see, and what we are doing is a wait-and-see, because uh, we cannot move into new technologies, new engines, and new fuels, because we don't have any, and we don't know what it will be. I mean, two years ago, we started looking into LNGs, LNG fuel bulkers, and then now to methanol. But it's very expensive, and we don't know if anyone wants to fix the ships. So what we are doing right now, it's a wait and see. We go for two or three ships a year, renewing our older ships, because we don't intend to keep ships after 20 years, we will scrap them and we basically the ships will get out of the system, we put them back on and our net effect is uh, zero. And also you have to remember by doing so we're going to more advanced uh, vessels, uh, IMO phase 3 tier 3, uh, consuming uh, below 15 tons of fuel a day compared to 25. I'm talking about uh, our type of vessels, uh, Kamsamaxis or Postpanamaxis and uh, you go into, into this uh, wait and see attitude until things uh, are more clarified. Also, right now the shipyards, the shipyards cannot produce ships like they could in 2007 and 2008. Uh, in Balkis, because I know very well the market, is Japan can produce 100 Balkis a year and China another 250, so it's 350. There are 12,000 bulkers out there. It's almost 25 percent uh, a year. I mean, the amount of ships that they will go out of the market reaching 20 years uh, age is much more than what will come in. So I'm very optimistic for the long-term uh, 
prospect of uh, all the markets, not all, only the tripod. What we cannot do and what we shouldn't do is we cannot go and order new technologies because we don't know if they will work. We cannot do stupid things like uh, conversions from uh, tankers, from dry to tankers, like uh, we had conversions from uh, dry, from tankers to dry in 07, 08. Now people say Sirmax tankers are earning, uh, I don't know, 150, I don't know how, 150,000 a day. 100, 100. Uh, caves are earning uh, 7,000 dollars a day. Maybe we put that that our caves in, uh, in the shipyard and convert them to Suez Maxis. I don't know. We should not do these clever things. Every time uh, over the last uh, 30 years, whenever someone tried to, to do the clever thing, he was always uh, he always lost money. So uh, we stay with the wait and see attitude. If I cannot, I cannot. Uh, let's say promote uh, responsible ordering because there's no chance that the ordering will be responsible because there are no birds there. So let's see how what future will uh, uh, bring to us. But I agree with Andreas that uh, uh, what we are trying to do, especially with sanctions, we are increasing emissions, we are in increasing ton mines, it's good for tanker owners, it's good for other owners, but it's bad for emissions. So slow down the fleet if you want to reduce the emissions and remove the sanctions because with the sanctions you are, we are hurting the environment, we are not doing anything else. And the war stop the war, find a way to stop the war. As simple as that. Thank you, Boris. There has been uh, a lot of discussion around the likelihood of a multi-fuel future. Uh, do you have any sort of opinion which fuels might be the right? fuels to target going forward? No. Um, we've seen a very good presentation earlier. On but uh, my guess is it's for the foreseeable future, it'll be this fuel that we call conventional. <laughs> for how many years? <laughs> A long time. <laughs> Andreas, um, following the EU ETS uh, regulation, the question is, are the shipping players ready for this? Of course, yes. We did take care of that. We did try and I think we did succeed in shifting this cost to to what we call commercial operator. That is the charterer. It's not quite clear yet, but it's the charterer or the supplier of the fuel. Therefore, this is a, a voyage cost. It's not a land cost. In doing this, we shifted the cost into what we call separate before. And it's to the European consumer. Now, what we should also do, our very small community, is educate the European consumer so they get on the street and they kick the idiots who introduce them. That's <laughs> Can we have uh, your views, please, on the uh, same ETS issue? And uh, and what about the proceeds uh, collected? How should these apportioned by the EU? Well, you know, the EU ETS, uh, it's, uh, I know this is a little bit of a shifting landscape, but uh, I had a presentation given to me by by DNV just the last week. And what I understand is, uh, you mentioned commercial owner, what it ends up effectively being is the DOC holder that's responsible for returning the EUAs uh, at the end of, or actually by March or something, the year following uh, the emissions you, 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 you've uh, basically produced. And I think, I think that proposition is very difficult and there's a lot of technical managers and the massive DOC holders in this room who need to figure out how is that going to be sold. Um, you know, this, these are actually financial contracts that, that hold a lot of value um, and I don't think the normal technical manager 
but although they, they manage ships perfectly well, uh, have the setup in order to, to, to manage that. So, uh, but uh, but I, I totally agree with Andreas here. You know, that there has to be some information given on where this cost is ending up because it's 100% sure it's going to end up with the consumer. But it, it is, uh, you know, we in the shipping industry needs to look, need to look at it as a voyage cost, just an added cost to, to consuming fuel and, and calculate, uh, you know, in that respect. Um, one thing I'm, I'm worried about is how you know, will then trading patterns uh, optimize <laughs> against the EU ETS? You know, it's obviously you don't really want to bring an oil cargo from China into Northwest Europe uh, unless you do some cargo operations uh, prior to, to entering the ETS area. So, and as you rightly said, uh, um, it's, it's, it's another issue how to measure and record these emissions on the balance sheets of the various companies. I am an engineer and an accountant, but I'm still not clear how this should work. I don't know whether you would like to comment on this. Yeah, but the challenge here is that you're going to accumulate EUAs throughout an entire calendar year which could be worth a lot of money. One of, you know, this, the, the EUAs are one of the most volatile kind of uh, instruments you have. Um, and uh, so you, you, you could end up having on a balance sheet, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, uh, kind of a security that moves up and down, which you then are supposed to be surrendering the quarter after the year is finished. So, so how this is handled, and we know, you know, we, Kind of from an accounting perspective, you know, just to, if you're a ship owner, uh, to get hedge accounting for anything is, is impossible. So, so um, yeah, and, and, and it's all this, and this is the challenge with the kind of regulations is that the full process doesn't seem to be kind of done all the way, uh, almost as if you know people just make it up as they go, um, and, and that's a worrying uh, kind of part. And, and uh, sometimes then regulations don't have the effect that uh, they're intended to. And I think the biggest challenge here, and it was pointed to by, by some of the percent presenters earlier today, is why on earth don't we use well to make in shipping? You know, it's, uh, that's the only sensible way of calculating emissions from fuel. Uh, you can't just look at tank to well, tank to wake. Thank you, and Lars. Uh, let me change the, uh, the topic a little bit to the uh, issue of uh, workforce, which continues to be a challenge following the uh, uh, post-COVID-19 post uh, era. Russia and Ukraine are obviously two of the top five source nations for seafarers, uh, and difficulties in sourcing from these countries have compounded to an existing uh, scarcity of skilled crew. Uh, Andreas. Can, can we have your views on this matter, and, and in particular, how will the industry transformation affect the workforce needs, both on board and onshore, of course? Yeah, there is no answer to that. It will be very, very difficult. It's, we found ways, especially in Cyprus, to continue employing Ukrainian crew, but uh, there is a big problem out there, and it's a huge huge percentage of the crew are Ukrainian, and they are good crew too, right? It's not easy to be replaceable. So, uh, through the years, I suppose, if the war continues, we're going to see um, more and more of the other nations producing more, um, yeah, like the Chinese, the Indians, I think Philippines are flat out, can't find any more Filipino crew. I have to live with that. It's a problem that it comes to stay you and it's not going to go away. Nicole, do you expect any change in the expertise of skilled crew as a result of the industry transformation? And can I also ask you uh, how can it be something that we discussed? Uh, we touched on it uh, last night over a, over a drink uh, with some other ship owners. How can we make shipping more attractive to the younger generation? Ah. Well, unfortunately, I think in terms of competent crew, it's only going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Because as the industry tries to invest um, 
seafarers and their training at the same time so does technology change so in essence what we're doing is catching up um, not not increasing the base not necessarily increasing the standard um, of, of a given uh, pool of people but replacing through time and improving through time uh, a fixed number so yes in a way i'm, I'm very very optimistic uh, pessimistic, sorry, about the, the future being brighter in the short term. Here in Cyprus, we have done uh, great efforts to improve on that level. The government has been very, very active in trying to promote uh, the, the industry as a whole, in a way, both, both uh, careers on board and ashore. Uh, and it's wonderful that we live in a place that actually recognizes the significance and takes an active role to participate in this problem. Um, but I think there is a lot of work going on in the head on that, on that front. It's not an easy uh, problem to solve, nor mm -hmm. will it be solved quickly. And it's an issue that is faced by many sectors, not just shipping, of course. Uh, John Michael, do you think that the industry will be more dependent on the human factor uh, or less following the industry transformation? And um, uh, in particular, will the new technologies, uh, artificial intelligence, automation, robotics, uh, reduce the number of people needed in the industry? I, I think. <laughs> so I, I think that the start here, artificial intelligence and new technology augments the way we do things. I.e., it improves them, it makes them better. I don't think that people will be replaced, certainly not to the extent that, um, that we've all, we all hear about. I think in the shipping industry, absolutely, it is 100% a people-person business, um, and generally in business, and certainly in shipping, it all comes down to the people. So I, I do think that we will continue to be a people-driven a people business. And, and I would not have an autonomous ship, ever. <laughs> to be honest with you, I wouldn't like to be on the autonomous Agree. And bring these things as nicely to the uh, technological transformation. Uh, traditionally, we have seen uh, uh, shipping players being hesitant to adopt new technologies. Uh, Polis, do you think uh, this has now changed? Are the owners willing to accept and try new technologies much easier now? As, as I said before, we don't really know what are the new technologies. We, we've been uh, monitoring what the liner companies are doing. Uh, some dry bulk companies, big ones in Japan, they have been using the last two years are fuel LNG, uh, liner companies the same, now they are talking about methanol, we don't know what, when these engines will uh, come and uh, find us, maybe it's not in the next, it's not going to happen in the next two or three years. So we have to improve our ships uh, environmentally with uh, paints, with ducks, with other things that we are doing, investing, you know, the extra half a million in every dry dock to have the ships uh, running on lower consumptions. Of course, we have uh, sometimes uh, charters asking us to go with faster speeds for no reason. I had the other day a ship going up the Mangelan, uh, eight force uh, winds, asking the charter, asking if we can improve our speed and uh, open up speed. I said, it's no point. We just burn 10 tons more and we'll, we'll still do the same uh, speed. So, there are also some ignorant people in, in, uh, in uh, chartering uh, companies. They subcontract uh, uh, operations to other countries. And they, you hear all sorts of uh, stupid requests. So for the time being anyway, technology is not, uh, is not moving very fast and we simply have to wait see what the new fuel will be and what, uh, when the new engines will be available. But it's not coming in the next three years. Mm -hmm. Andreas, would you like to add anything on that? Uh, 
which new technologies do you see quickly uh, entering the shipping industry? Uh, are you talking on fuel, on the alternative fuel, or all technologies? Not the fuel, uh, technology uh, in general. Yeah, every, every day there is new technology coming. There are hundreds and hundreds of companies that uh, go around and introduce new uh, types. I think, I think this is all what the decarbonization is about produce a lot of money for these people and a lot of uh, um, research to make little bit save 0.1% of the consumption of this bank, uh, millions and millions. This is, I think, what is driven by lobbyists and this is where the problem is. Uh, nothing effective will come from there. On the fuel, I fully agree with you. No, nothing ahead of us. But I should repeat what I said before, that shipping counts for 2.2%, uh, Europe put it to 2.5, 2.6, but by, to do that, they include the ports. The ports is a short industry. You can do it with electricity. <laughs> so the actual emission from shipping is only 2.2. Why on earth should you go into these amazing technologies and this huge expense when you can simply produce more um, uh, emission-free uh, electricity where it can absorb the 55, 65% of, of the emissions today and which is much more than we need to. Absolutely uh, reduce. This is what doesn't make sense. So I don't see much linking to that. I see just hovering around for a few years until we do have less emissions through the electrical energy and will be less pressure from the public on the environment. Then <laughs> people will come to their senses and know this would be uh, a bad dream of the past. Thank you, Andreas. Uh, let me now dive <coughs> into another <coughs> excuse me, uh, significant point, that of the um, mergers and acquisitions activity in our market. Uh, John Michael, can I ask uh, how, in your opinion, will the industry transformation uh, affect the M&A activity in the market? Will the transformation process create uh, more opportunities for new ship owners to enter the market? or will the industry demand for more consolidation in the market? You're asking me or Lars? Lars will be up to you. Okay. Um, Lars, be ready. Well, I, I hope so. Um, I think an industry with more mergers and acquisitions and more liquid sale and purchase markets is a better industry. Um, I'm a big believer in consolidation myself, whether that be with a balance sheet or commercial consolidation. I think there's a lot to be said about that, but um, I, I, don't, I don't know. My guess is probably uh, we will. I think the big thing for mergers and acquisitions to happen is there's got to be money flowing for the system. So. Uh, for dry bulk, I would probably look towards the second half of this year where we're more bullish. <laughs> and Lars, you're waiting for my question. <laughs> Can we have your views on this topic uh, and also uh, considering uh, Frontline's uh, recent announcement on the Euronav transaction? Yeah, uh, Ralph, so consolidation, uh, you know, I, I am I'm, uh, with the John Michael there, but but, uh, but he said, you know, a very kind of important part, whether it is balance sheet or commercial. And uh, I think you do need consolidation for, um, you know, kind of all the challenges that lies ahead. Uh, we're seeing that by way of the pools offering kind of to, to the smaller owners that uh, wouldn't have the, uh, you know, capacity to, to, uh, to invest uh, in order to, to, to kind of become more efficient. Uh, that they offer these services, uh, you know, also in respect of decarbonization. 
Uh, with regards to consolidation and Euronav, uh, you know, we wouldn't really have achieved very much on consolidation in that respect. Uh, you know, the two largest uh, ship owners coming together. Uh, because I think consolidation is something, first of all, is something you search for in a challenged market. And why you search for it is because you have the two fragmented offer side on the shipping side. So basically too many owners running and stumbling upon each other to compete for the lower paying uh, cargo. So, and, and that's where you really want, uh, you know, in, in those situations, that's when you want to see consolidation. For the tanker side right now, we actually, you know, we're pretty much okay. Um, you know, because it's more the cargo guys that are stumbling upon each other over each other in order to, to secure the ship. And this is always in the best position a ship owner can be in. Thank you, Lars. Nicole, um, what does the future look like for small to medium-sized shipowning groups? Do you see more consolidation in the market? I think we've seen a lot of consolidation already over the last decade, and it's not a surprise. Um, increase in regulations has also meant increased bureaucracy uh, and a huge uh, administrative burden that is very, very difficult for smaller companies to sustain. Uh, I hope, would like to think, that we will not get to the point where medium-sized companies are also too small. Thank you. Uh, yes, please. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah no, I uh, uh, agree, and I think commercially, Echoing my panelists, um, we should be doing as much consolidation as we possibly can. I think flexible cooperations are the way we separate ourselves from other species at a very high level. And I think flexible cooperations in commercially um, um, managing uh, our ships and our revenues together is can only be beneficial for ship owners. Thank you, John Michael. Um, we still have a few seconds, well, minutes, hopefully. Um, so uh, let me uh, dive into the last topic of, of our agenda, which is Cyprus, and we have the Honorable Deputy Minister here with us. So let us discuss a little bit about Cyprus as a shipping hub. Uh, Lars, if I can start with you, uh, can Cyprus, as an international shipping hub, play any role in the transformation of the industry? And can you also uh, explain to us the rationale for Frontline redomiciling its head office from Bermuda to Limassol? Well, um, first of all, thank you for allowing us to, to come to Cyprus. Uh, um, and also, you know, it was partly motivated to get on this panel, of course. Uh, now, um, uh, the thing is that, that uh, we are, you know, the world is. Uh, you know, for a ship owner is shrinking. Um, uh, you know, if you read the Financial Times or all the news outlets, uh, you know, there's discussions about the global tax and uh, whatnot. So it, it means that, uh, you know, these kind of specific locations where you could just get on a tax holiday uh, are becoming less and less uh, kind of interesting. Also, um, you know, when, the, when your domicile is regarded a, a tax heaven by quite a few of the countries you trade with, then, then it becomes even more complicated. So then you're back to finding a place where you have, you know, you have a predictable kind of uh, framework for shipping, but you also have the expertise amongst the populations so you can actually uh, source, uh, uh, well, maybe not that much seafarers anymore, but at least technical and, and operational accounting, kind of basically all the elements you need in order to run an ownership. And this is where, uh, and I have to be honest with you, you know, we looked at both Malta and Cyprus when we we're going to move into to the EU, but shows uh, Cyprus, number one, of course, there is a legacy here. Uh, our major shareholder has been part of, or is at least in the world, but it's also been established here for, for more than 30 years. But secondly, uh, Cyprus as a community offers a lot to uh, a ship owner. That's encouraging to hear. Polish, perhaps we can have your views on this matter uh, based on your experience today, having uh, relocated your head offices to Cyprus a few years ago. 
Yes, uh, it's, uh, we're very happy with this relocation uh, since 2015. Uh, gives us many options. We're running a listed company, but also a private company. Uh, we have another one in Monaco with my brother. He has on his own another one, two companies. So Cyprus is a place that is good for business. Cyprus helps business and solves problems quickly. In 2020, when we had the nightmare of COVID and we had our cement and we were begging our charters to pay the deviation costs for our ships to go to places in the middle of Indian Ocean or in the middle of uh, Pacific to change our crew, they wouldn't allow us at our cost to change the crew. And Cyprus opened here corridors and ship owners came and changed their crews in uh, Limassol. Many uh, uh, cruise companies who were badly hit from, uh, from uh, COVID, economically almost destroyed. They, had, uh, they found very friendly waters here in Limassol to make safe crew changes, for God's sake, to get the crew out, put them in a bus, take them to the airport and go back to their home and change the crew on board the ships. So these are the penalties we are paying now when we don't see young people going to sea and they're afraid of how they will be treated in our seamen, how they will be treated in future. Because we see rising costs everywhere. Seamen cost is rising, they are reducing, we have the war. I know our cost, and believe me, we are hands-on company, we are not public company, and we let other people run our ships. We are there every day, 12 hours, running our ships, and our cost, the OPEX, is 50% more than it was in 2016. And I say to Lucas, who is here, listening to me, what are we doing here? We will lose the ships. We are unable to stay competitive. We will lose shipping to the Chinese and to the Asians. Fedon said before, and uh, ABS said before, Vasilis Kustalis, that the majority of uh, new ships are coming from China. We will come from Chinese and Asian owners, not from Greeks, not from Europeans. One day we will lose shipping, maybe not in our career, during our career, the next 10-15 years, but maybe in 30 years. And imagine if we have a war, and we have China and the Asian countries getting stronger and stronger, and Indians, and these people, they, they, they came and they controlled the, the, the pipeline of world uh, transport. So all these things are very worrying, and Europe and all the countries of Europe uh, must sit together and try and find solutions to these issues and see shipping more seriously. Cyprus is the exception and Greece is following also uh, to try and promote all these things uh, within the European Union. So for me this uh, cost element is uh, going to hit us very bad in the next uh, uh, 10, 15 years. I don't know when it will come, the, 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 the almost the end, but if we cannot control our cost, no matter how much money we make for two years, because okay, we made money for two years, and then the previous seven we lost hell of a lot of money. I mean, uh, you know, come on now, we just made back the money we lost the previous seven years. It's not that honest we made fortunes and people say, ah, oh, the market is very good and all these things. We all know this and we can all, uh, all read balance sheets and can see impairments and losses and uh, all these things. So if we cannot control uh, Cost, we will lose it. And Cyprus is a country that understands what the businessmen want. We all run business that's outside Cyprus, and we want to have people who understand. And when we ask something that is reasonable, they try to accommodate. I'm very proud to say that we have a country that listens and tries to accommodate. It's not against the ship owners, it's not against the, the entrepreneurs, and they are here, and it's the next. As, I mean, it's one of the only European countries that uh, are so much pro-business. Thank you, Maurice. Thank you very much for your insights. Uh, Nicole, we've got the uh, Deputy Minister here listening to us. Any ideas that you would like to, to mention on how to make Cyprus even more attractive to ship owners and managers? Or Andreas? <laughs> you can listen more. <laughs>
No. Well, Cyprus, um, Cyprus, yes, it's what the policy says. Understands business and understands shipping. That makes us unique on the planet. So the sky is the limit for Cyprus. We have, of course, Turkey fighting us like hell, but sometime we hope this will be over and then we'll find our way to the top. Thank you, Andreas. And I have the last question to John Michael. You already told me that uh, the organizations that you are heading do not have a presence in Cyprus. After hearing to this <laughs> group of panelists, have we convinced you to set up a base here in Limassol? Or do we need to try harder? Are, are you sure you really want me to start off with? Uh, and second of all, uh, yes, the, the, this has been one hell of an advertisement from Cyprus, especially hearing it from such esteemed people as, as on my panel and to the right and left of me. So I'm very impressed with what I heard to about Cyprus, and I think you should all be very, very proud of what you've accomplished and what you will continue to accomplish. Thank you very much, uh, John Michael, and uh, we have reached the, the end of this session. I'm sure uh, that uh, the views expressed by our distinguished panelists will provide more food for thought and further consideration by all of us. Of course, it's past 5.30 in the afternoon, and I guess we all need some real food right now, or perhaps, should I say, uh, some, a few real drinks. I would like to thank uh, all the panelists for their uh, interesting and insightful remarks and for sharing their thoughts, uh, reflections and ideas and positively contributing to the discussion. I do wish you all continued success and fulfillment in your future endeavors. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your patience. And